0: out of two or three qualifications that are most important. So I think a lot of this is also, um, you know, the, the older I get, the more I, I, I every day I realize that the black people. We're not a monolithic block, right? There, there's no one way to define us as people. So how can we also define the art that inspires us, the music that inspires us, all those sort of things, but it's but, so really, You know, as a creator, and I'm honored to be up here with all these other creators, but to be a black comics creator means you gotta work a little extra hard, right? I mean, just to be taken seriously and just, you know, to not want to draw Barbie or, or, you know, black Barbie. You know, like that's the sort of stuff they offer you.
1: Christy, Christy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh
1: I don't know why I know that.
2: Okay. Well, look, I'm going to jump back there and let you talk about bottom views. <laughs> okay. I mean, some of the issues I think we're talking about here they show up in the book, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think you have a very a, a very elevated level of dialogue between many of your characters, uh, and also some sort of very funny dialogue between your characters. Mm-hmm. And because of the setting and the situation that you're on. so tell us about body views.
3: Yeah, Bottom Feeders is a book that just came out a couple weeks ago. It looks like this. Uh, It's a book about um, gentrification on the south side of Chicago, told through the lens of science fiction and horror. It's about these uh, two recent art school grads who moved to a fictitious neighborhood in south Chicago looking for cheap rent move into a building that is occupied by a parasitic symbiotic organism that lives within the walls. Uh, and as they slowly uncover the origin of this creature, um, the two main characters um, also put their relationship to test. But the the book is a metaphor for obviously on the surface it's about uh, gentrification, but it's also a metaphor for uh, cultural appropriation. So the monster in the building is a metaphor for um, black culture and hip-hop culture as this thing that's drawing all these people to this thing. Uh, people that are motivated by not only monetizing it but also um exploiting it for a cool cool factor or cool points um so it discusses a lot of these things uh and in uh doing research for the book it struck me how how many parallels there were between cultural appropriation cultural appropriation and gentrification which i i discovered follow the same arc which is i I, like had this whole system worked out but it starts with um, someone uh, fears something, then they covet something, then they take it, then they nullify it, and then they abandon it. And those are the cycles that I that I outlined for gentrification. I found that they also work exactly well for culture, cultural appropriation. And recently I was doing, I was reading back to Joseph Campbell's um, Hero's Journey uh, books, and I, I realized that that arc also follows the hero's journey. So like, it just like, this is totally off point, but like it totally illuminated this thing that like, these white gentrifiers are following the hero's journey in their attempt to appropriate culture and appropriate like anything that belongs to people of color and Black people specifically. So that's that's where I'm coming from. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. um, and, and Ebony, would, would you talk a little bit about High and the things about it that you do in that book?
4: Sure. Um, so High is my debut um, comic and. It's a series of short stories that loosely revolve around black women's hair and it deals with broader themes of family, place, and belonging uh, wrapped around the vestiges of racism and I would probably say classism as well. Um, and so it's a mix of fiction and creative nonfiction stories and then um, parody hair product advertisements and Let's see, so the the first story is called Hot Comb and it's about um, the story of my first perm and I wrote about that because uh, for all the black women I see out there, you know that you remember your first perm if you ever got one, right? Because it's the one that burns the most. Um, and so uh, I wrote about that and then I also wanted to explore some of the, the pleasure and playing that goes along with our hair and how it's uh, been criminalized for pretty much since we uh, were forced over here. Um, and part of it's a celebration of how we've endured that and then also uh, a critique but not a not so direct. I try to do it indirectly with the stories that I tell and then also with the the fun I I've had—I I've had with uh, making my hair, my fake hair product advertisements. My um, my fake line is called Proline. Um and or Pinnacle. And um, so with that one, I when you know I'd spend time at a black hair salon when I was a kid and a teenager. Um, you know, there's a long wait period uh, usually, and so I would flip through. Uh, magazines like Ebony, Jed, High Hair, um, and you know, covet the hairstyles I'd see. Um, and I didn't think much about what they were selling me besides like the, the products, so like Pomade or um, Edge Tamer. And it wasn't until later when I, I don't know, my 20s and 30s when I saw these uh, magazines again that I was a little bit more critical of what they were also selling me besides the product. And so um, I decided to redraw some of the ads I saw and then make some from my own imagination that kind of uh, takes back what uh, I think I feel like was lost when I looked at those um, magazines when I was younger. Uh, I just found them really... Uh, Heteronormative and like a celebration of whiteness that made me uncom- uncomfortable. So um, that's what I did. You yeah.
2: know the, the ads that you have in the. I mean, you seem to also you, you take it to different kind of social situations uh, and relationships between uh, Black women, uh, particularly yeah. the one that's uh, set in an African community.
4: Oh yeah, yeah. So I lived in Angola for three years um, and. The story that Calvin's talking about is uh, Last Angle on Saturday, and it's it's a fiction um, story that was inspired by Janelle Monet's uh, Dirty Computer video. Uh, you know, if you guys have seen it, it's the one where. She's with a group of women and they're all in this like futuristic Mustang and like driving I think they're they look like they're in Utah but they're like driving just having a good time. I was like, well I want to go on a road trip kind of thing and so um, for my last story I drew a group of women going through uh, one of my favorite countries Angola, which if you don't know where Angola is, so there's South Africa and then Namibia. And then Angola is there and it hugs the Atlantic coast on um, the continent. Um, so, yeah, that's and that's a fun story. So it's about women having a good time, not really caring about anything, and just spending um, a day going on the road trying to get to the beach. Yeah.
2: yeah the, the other thing that um, really attracted me in your the ad pages, because they, are, they well, I mean, uh, I may be misremembering them, but they I remember a time. Uh, certainly, in my household growing up, uh, the kinds of hair products uh, that were around. You know, uh, I, you know I had a little more applied to my own hair at times, but also this, you know, the smell of women working on their hair, the hot combs uh, that you talk about. But these ads seem to really bring together these memories and, in, a different, in, a, in an interesting way in, in one page. Was that your intent to use them all as these very symbols of?
5: my
4: fantastic experience so that was part of it so i so i don't know if yeah i think that was so i've done more than just what's in the book but i think um i might have put one of a hair gel that I used my mother used to put on me and it has a very distinct smell um, to it so there is some of that where i used. i, I was drawn to the products that I used or um, my family members and friends had used, so uh, I did uh, a wig one too, um, but I, I also did it to, in celebration of like some of uh, the things, the pop culture um, stuff that I like, and then also to pay homage to Octavia Butler because I'm kind of obsessed with her, yeah. so I don't know if people pick that up, but um, um, yeah, and then there's also a Black Panther one because the movie came out, and I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I have to do a Black Panther right now because um, you just have to, right? Because there's never been anything like of that, of course, you know." So, yeah.
2: Alita, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I mean, you, you've got so much work. I mean, the slide I have up here is obviously is uh, World of Wakanda. Uh, Do you want to talk about working on that? Uh, I know you have a creator own work. Um, I, I just love to hear you talk about your work and how you put together your stories—stories stories that are meaningful to you.
1: Oh, well, I don't mind speaking on any of any of those topics <laughs> okay. at all. Uh, first, I will praise my mighty Marvel masters and thank them for the opportunity to work on Black Panther for the second time, because in my long career, you, it's only what you what you're doing now that people know. So before i couldn't live down iron man and then for a long time you can't live down back, well now i can't live down this and that's fine that's perfectly fine i'm so happy it caught on so i'm glad to talk about that right. they made me work really hard oh my god they tried to kill me
2: how people seem to have that experience they're
5: working. i know <laughs> we, should, we
1: should start turning them in for you know attempted murder yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: So, so, what was what was that process like? Uh, obviously, structuring uh, you know, in, very much about the door of the I've read some things about uh, you working on Black Panther in the past. I think with Christopher Priest, and you weren't too happy about some of the things.
1: Well, no. I was, of course, I'm happy to work on it. Don't know oh, that I, yeah. <laughs> we were were I didn't understand why we were drawing things. There they are. Okay, so you're his bodyguards. You're the ones that are gonna, you know, beat people up who want to attack the king. But you are wearing short miniskirts and high heels. Who fights in who miniskirts and high heels? I do not. I know what I'd look like if you rolled down at the top. Would <laughs> be gone. No. So I didn't understand the huge hair, this kind of look that if you're going to draw a black woman, she has to be highly. sensitive. She has to be sexualized. She has to be presented as, as if she can't be beautiful unless she's half naked. And I saw that again when Black Panther was like the really big Black Panther book drawn by um, Brian Stelfreeze. Again, they, here you're presenting these women, these bodyguards. Yes, they're supposed to be his harem. I realized that from reading the script. So I'm like, what? You're supposed to sleep with these women too? Well, they should draw naughty parts then, but no, it's Marvel, we can't. So here we go again. But look, look that scene when when she's rescuing these women and she's getting in trouble. What is she wearing? A metal bra top and like the Princess Leia outfit. I'm like, am I supposed to draw them wearing this stuff in my series? It's like, no, we have to put sensible clothes on these women. We have to make people take them seriously. They will never be fighting in high heels as long as I'm drawing them. And I will not draw a single halter top on any one of them. And believe me, I understand the whole thing about hair. I went everything from the hot comb with the holding the ears down. Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) don't burn me, please, please. To I am not drawing them all with perms in Wakanda. There's someone's going to celebrate what it actually looks like because believe me, when I am dead, my it will say, When you find my body, perm my hair. <laughs> do not lay me down like that. <laughs> no. I can't do it. I can't do it. I know there's a lot of natural ladies. I lost her all of <time> hair. <laughs> I have to hold on to that. The colonizers have done that to me. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to make those changes for the book just to be able to, you know, this is not right. And they only let me make them because, you know, as you say, the process, there's no creative process. It's a lead to get it done. Jesus Christ. <laughs> no Are you finished yet? <laughs> hurry, hurry. Yes, but so they didn't really notice what I was doing. They didn't notice the array that the things I was creating. And I don't think, they would have noticed because you're working for, I'm trying to find a nice way to say it, but you're working for
2: uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. a
1: Yeah, that's a nice way. (laughs) (laughs) And we we know what, uh, what the man looks like. And they will not understand our plight, our problems. They will not understand it. Even getting to see Black Panther with the crew, with the Marvel crew, it wasn't as well received. So they're saying, like, oh, yes, that was a very good movie. Yes, this should do well. And then I saw it in the movie theater with people, with my brother, and watched tears roll down his face and watch people gasp and feel that thing, that thing. It's like we drew this whole scene and Wakanda looks like what you've drawn. And you're crying because this is the world you wish you could be in. This is the world you wish was real, and they cannot see that. So I think that's why I got away with a lot of stuff because they didn't realize what I was doing.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: that's always been a strategy. Uh, <laughs> uh, David, I'd love to hear you talk about Bitterroot. I mean, talk about a Really, spectacularly rich historical setting. Uh, obviously, it's a kind of a it's a paranormal high adventure, but you bring together a lot of, of, of really great. Cultural antecedents it's set in Harlem in the 1920s. Uh, there's a little bit of, there's a lot of root culture. Uh, can you talk about that and, uh, and how that figures in? I guess in your view of Black storytelling.
0: Sure. sure. Well, <clears throat> I've been in a series. I'm co-writing with Chuck Brown. Sandra Green is the artist on it. And they uh, they had been developing that that series for a little while when they asked me to come on board and help. And it was, it was set during the part the Renaissance. Part the Renaissance is the backdrop of the story. It's about a family of monster hunters, and and the uh, the family has been has been hunting monsters for a long time, going all the way back to before you know, the Civil War, for the, for the slavery, and, and, it out. and um, the South. And but the the thing has been that they don't kill monsters; they cure them, right? and. and and, and when I came on board, I said, okay, so they cured the monsters of what? Well, they monsters. Went, okay, but, you know, what kind of monsters? And, you know, they're monster monsters. And, and I said, well, they're, um, I said, and you said that they, you know, got their, their training in the Underground Railroad and things like that um, and brought over stuff from the, the West Indies. And, and well, how does and tie into the monsters? well, it doesn't. And I was like, well, now it does. Um, and so, you know, what we did was we, we started building this really rich world in which um, monsters are people who are infected by this disease. And the disease is, is hatred and racism. And they um, and so our family, the family that sends send the slaves, they are, when we meet them in 1924, it's after a series of tragedies that has killed most of the family. And they're split. And the split is, do we cure these monsters who are, who are born out of hate? Do we cure them, or do we just kill them? Right? And that's the question that black America faces. Is. is it our responsibility to heal all this hate that has destroyed us, or should we just fight back against it? Right? And I don't have the answer for that, but that exploration is... Sometimes it's fun sometimes it's really, really depressing, right? right. Um, but that was it. I wanted to get into what it, um, what that responsibility is. But then I also, um, as we were developing this series more, Chuck and I, Chuck and I started talking to me and I said, well, what happens when we, as black folks, become infected by that same disease? You wouldn't become infected the same way. We'd still become infected. you become infected by hate. By that hate function Place. What does that do to you? What kind of monster does that make us? And that's sort of the exploration of what we're now we're going in. we're seeing two very specific breeds of monsters. Um, you see those that are that are caused by hate and, and oppression, or they, they are force of oppression, and then we see what oppression what kind of monster that can turn you into. So it's um, but it's really light-hearted and it's fun.
2: You know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, now, now you also work. I mean, you you've written Cyborg. I mean, you've written Luke Cage. I mean, uh, uh, do you uh, do, do you reconnect those kind of heroes to some kind of cultural vein uh, in, in black tradition? That, just to make sure that they're you know they're not just another you know.
0: Well really a yeah, suit. No, I I I didn't I, I tell the story a lot when my cousin and I we were we were pretty young when we discovered Luke Cage. Uh, we walked into a seven eleven in Richmond, Virginia no, not Richmond, Richmond, Vienna, Virginia, Virginia, and they had one copy of uh, Luke Cage Hero for Hire, and so we bought that copy, and we both read it, and we loved it. It was the second black superhero we'd ever seen back then in our lives. Um but we thought it was really amusing because we didn't know any black people would talk like that, right? We were like, oh man, this is cool. Do you
5: know anybody that talks like this? And we tried it, you know, we were were running around that whole summer. we were, you know, sweet Christmas. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I, I, you know, so we were probably six or seven at the time when we stuck with this character, but it always stuck with me and I felt like, well, this, this doesn't feel like black folks that I know, people in my family. And um, and then the older I got, and I started getting to who the writers were and who the creators were, and realizing that, 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 that especially during my childhood, there were, there were no black writers. Um, and, and and as I started exploring my desire to kind of tell stories, I felt like, well, I, should, I would like to try to bring something to it that feels like, oh, maybe this was written by a black person or by a racial person in my case. Um, and, and so that was a lot of what I, I wanted to try to bring to it And, and now with all the work that I do I, I'm trying to just tap into that feeling that I always had as a kid It wasn't just the first time, you know, a Luke Cage time that, that feeling of always feeling like, well this isn't really meant for me You know, like, I saw talking on Star Trek the other day Star Trek wasn't meant for me, but Mr. Spock was meant for me you know, like you get these little bits and pieces. Like they they, they, um, they appease us, they, they um, pacify us. They give us just a little bit to make us feel better in the moment and, and not um, not demand more. And, and and I know you know this is sort of what Elizabeth was talking about with horrible comments. Like no no we shouldn't be doing more. You know why why is why are these characters dressed this way? Why do you have them talking this way? Why do you have them doing stupid stuff like this? And I I've locked so many editors writers go, yeah, you know, we could do that, and then we'll look stupid and/or racist, or could show a Muslim, <laughs> you could know, and, other And there's always big stuff,
2: uh, you know, I, I mean, I just have a general <laughs> question. I I'm curious curious anyone in the panel can react to it. I mean, I, I'm a little, i I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s. I, I grew up at a time when, I, when I was a kid, when any black character showed up in mass media, it was mesmerizing. I mean, absolutely, you know, people gather around the screen, Um, uh, uh, whether it was TV, uh, like I said, I remember when Black Panther first showed up, it was sort of dazzling, Um, but I mean, the world has moved, I mean, there are a variety of uh, ways to encounter uh, black representation in the media and books, and and, and I'm curious now, how, how has that affected your work? I mean, do you have more freedom now? Uh, uh, it sounds like you're still uh, up against uh, issues. Um, is this a meaningful question anymore?
3: Yeah, I could jump in. I would say that um, my life changed after Get Out came out. Uh, because suddenly the gatekeepers realized that there was a market for weird black shit yeah. okay. and that was the stuff i was making but i my last book upgrade soul i worked on it for 15 years and every few years i'd hit a milestone and pitch it to publishers it's a book about an elderly mixed race couple and their disfigured clones and on the surface every editor, every gatekeeper on the planet would read the pitch and be like, nobody's ever going to want to read this. And I faced that for 15 years. And then when Get Out came out, and Black Panther came out, and people were like, oh shit, Like people might actually pay money to see something that doesn't star a 30-year-old muscle-bound white dude punching people to solve problems. And then I finally got in the door, and the book also lost an Eisner last night, but I think like... The- <laughs> But it was so gratifying.
0: Yeah, I was so.
3: so <laughs> uh, well, this, this
0: was a
2: conversation going on uh, in the after party. But, but moving on. <laughs> yeah,
3: but it was like I mean, just the nomination was such. Like I'm a I'm a bitter, petty person, and <laughs> <laughs> when I got, you ended
5: Wayne McDuffie I did. First, yeah,
3: we yeah, like, that, that, was, yeah, like, that was, was. Yeah, I was. Yeah, and that was. But like the attention that the book has gotten has been such a vindication for me. Just to be like to. Like after I got the Dwayne McDuffie Award, listen, I'm not, I'm not I'm going to keep this story short. But I will say that once I got the Dwayne McDuffie Award and I was vetted and then the industry started to open up uh, and I got an agent. My agent sent my same pitch to the editors I've been sending the pitches to for the past 15 years, like the exact same people. And suddenly they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I never opened your email from 15 years ago. Let's have a conversation. And that was like made everything worth it.
2: Yeah. Anyone else? Has the world changed? Uh, does no. does
1: it affect no. <laughs> not at all. i just as just as invisible now as the day I started. Yeah. People don't enjoy hearing me. I think I'm force-fed to people in certain situations so they catch up later. Like Black Panther did win in Eisner last year. I was in New York teaching. I woke up to a sort of Christmas morning thing going on, like, oh, it won? Oh, okay, I'm glad I did write that little speech that they were forcing me to write. Thank God. But it wasn't something that I expected. I expect to work until the day I die. And if I've done that, it's a life well spent. And if I can bring other women and bring other, make it comfortable for other people, I'll fight as long as I can so that you all don't have to fight as hard. And I notice no one's fighting as hard, which is great. I hear your story and your story, and it's like it's exactly what I wish I could have heard as a child and exactly what was missing. It wasn't there. So no matter if I'm totally and entirely forgotten, that's OK, because it doesn't exist in that way anymore. But for me, it starts all over. I'm reaching and I'm looking, going, okay, it's 20 years now. And this is my first time at this show. This is the first time ever being invited to this show. And I, at this point, I almost ask, why did you invite me to this show? I should have been home working because I have pages due on Monday. That was really difficult. Ooh, I'm in a lot of trouble. I can't even tell you. The editor's are sitting there looking. She's tweeting about FedEx. Yeah, there's another issue going
2: on. Yes, I know. Just
1: read my tweet. You'll see. Yeah. And I don't tweet about anything, but it's the same invisibility that I'm constantly fighting. It's like, okay, now have I reached a mountaintop? No, it's still uphill. It's still I'm still moving uphill. And I don't think I'll ever finish that fight. But at least what I'm hearing is that everyone else, they don't, they don't even start with that. I'm hearing start with creativity. You do you know, no one has ever asked me, hey, Anita, what you want to work on? And all this time never have I heard those words ever, not once, they choose the books I will work on, they tell me this is what you're doing next, it's not even I can't even turn it down because if I turn it down I might not work again, you're only as good as your next book, you know what? You, when your book is done, you're fired, you're done you have no job, so that's the scary reality, I balance on that edge and I'm going I gotta feed my kid, I can't say no and I can't stop yeah. um, Well, I,
2: I, I want to get some questions from the audience so Get ready, because I'm going to put you on the spot here. But I have a, a, another question: the economic system, the the the, uh, the retail channels, how comics are published. Uh, we, we're we're seeing a change in that, a dramatic change. Both, uh, yeah, as I said earlier, the impact of the book trade on the traditional comics industry, uh, uh, as well as social uh, social media, and of course. Crowdfunding um, uh, and self-publishing. Um, uh, you know, Ebony and Ezra, you guys are you're in the book. Well, you you you've published books yeah, as opposed to maybe some of the more traditional ways that the comics industry publishes. Uh, David, I know you have a new crowdfunding venture, and I apologize because I forgot the name of it. Solid
0: Comics. Okay. Next. And, I, I just um, wanted yeah.
4: to piggy before. Uh, yes, please, please Piggyback off of what uh, Alifa said because I, I'm not a part of Marvel or DC, and with Drawn and Quarterly, and they publish more alternative and indie comics, and um, a lot of the cartoonists there do everything, and I'm, I'm just disheartened and excited sad to hear um, the stuff that Elisa's gone through and so grateful that you're still doing it. Um, because I haven't had that experience at all. It's been kind of a cakewalk for me. I've been very grateful and blessed that I've had um, drawn like behind me doing just letting me do whatever I want, so.
2: Well, that's kind of what I'm talking about. There's a traditional industry of, 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 of company-owned, uh, licensed characters that work for higher Gates uh, the, the book trade, which I'm really more of a part of, uh, where obviously authors own their own copyrights. Uh, you, you have agents. Uh, you know, you, you you move from project to project. Uh, and David, you, you, I mean, you kind of work in both. You? You, you obviously you work in the traditional comic book industry. Um, Any in the book trade at all?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm, um, I'm originally not allowed to tens feet, which is Sure. Yeah. And working on follow up to that book. Uh, Work for pretty much every major publisher, and I think that um, you know there's, there's pros and cons to, to both. When you are working for any publisher, when, when someone else is writing the check to you, um, especially if you work on existing IP, whether it's you know something DC or Marvel or Dynamite on down the line, you know you're essentially a sharecropper. You know, they're giving you the tools and the feed the, the to plant the seed, all that sort of stuff. You know, how many? I think getting a little bit. If you're lucky, you make some money. But I, I mean, I know, out in England, how hard the works. We you know, we work together. and I'm, I know how nice the work. So, but I also know that you know, I started my own sort of publishing company uh, earlier this year, and this is. I my 70s, I was doing that back in the 90s, that's, that's how I got started. Um, and part of that was because I wanted to control my own destiny in some capacity, I didn't want to dance for anybody, I didn't want to have to, but what Ezra was doing with Upgrade Soul, um, pitch something to something he doesn't get, it. you know, if you're working in the book trade world, the, the, the rap model world, you um, Outside of comm publishers, you're having to pitch to, to editors at, at these big houses, and some of them are like, young enough to be, in my case, young enough to be my, my child, and they just don't get stuff. And um, and, and I, I realized, oh, well, I also pay attention to what sales figures look like, both in the book world and the comms world, and realizing, yeah, I can do this many units myself. Um, it might take me a little bit longer to sell them than it would a big publisher. But like in comics, you, you take a company like Marvel, you do a book for Marvel, if, it doesn't, if it's not a big hit, then it gets canceled. And the trade paperback comes out when it's, they print a certain number based on orders, and when it's done, it's done. And it's never gonna get a chance for them on again. Even if, say somewhere down the road, someone discovers and really loves it, Marvel doesn't care, that's just a flip on their radar. You put years of your life into this project, It's never gonna get seen again and so you know, what are you gonna do? Whereas if you create your own product, you create your own projects, you can nurse it, you can cultivate it for as long as you want, you can keep it in print as long as you want. And and there's nobody ever saying stupid things to you, you know, like I want to have an editor say to me. Um, I don't get, so why do white supremacists, why do they hate the black people? Why, did you explain that to me? <laughs> I, a seriously, an editor said that to me, and I said, no, that's not my job. And if You don't know that at this point. How you got this job, <laughs> so to, do you know how to read? Do you know how to write <laughs> issues? It was an ugly conversation, but I realized that, like, because I never thought, as a grown man, someone would ever ask me anything that stupid. I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, someone in the professional world, right? That's, um, anyway, I was about to like, make a really crash joke, but I um, won't.
5: <laughs> um, the, the
0: point is, is that, that um, there's, depending on who you are, what your background is, there's always going to be someone who's looking at you, sort of looking down and knows that you thinking that they're, they're superior in some capacity, that they know more than you do. And you know, was like if you take Alita, and I'm gonna, you know, put you on glass for a second. <laughs> you know, it's I think Alita is this is um, <laughs> all beautiful stuff. Um, I think that Alita is it's unfortunate in that she's been in the industry for a very long time and not getting the recognition during that time, but her efforts show. You don't see it all the time, but there's there are younger people coming up who talk to me about you, right? And it's like there's there's people in the trenches, Jimmy Robinson who I was talking to yesterday, there's people of color, there's women, there's there's people who've been to the behavior spot like 20, 30 years sometimes. And if you've been coming to these shows long enough, you know that there was there's far fewer of us 15, 20 years ago. Like everybody in this room. 20 years ago, this was it for the entire comic right? This is all black folks, And we, we walk past each other. You know, <laughs> we, we didn't want to call attention to each other. And there's are very few women here. And, and that, so in that regard, things have changed. Sometimes it's difficult to see those changes, especially if you're part of the change as it's happening. Now, there's other younger people coming in who's like, you know, if they're having problems with an editor, They can call me and I can say, okay, this is how you deal with this person. Oh, wait a second, I know this person. on my phone. Call them, I'll tell them, you know, stop writing so hard. You know, there's, 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 I'm actually mentoring people right now. When I was coming up, there weren't really that many mentors out there. And and so, yes and no, the change happens. and, And I think that it's difficult when you're in it to see the accomplishments. It can happen. you know, but when Lika and I were working together, there was a lot of people like,
5: Yo, you know what Lika Martina? I'm
1: like, yeah! You know. I don't know who they've been talking about, but I do see it with, with people like you, Brooke, and what you're saying and the things you say. Those are the things that, that were that kind of conversation, they were not going to hear. So I, sorry, so now that I actually hear it, when I'm listening to other people, other creators, it's like, wait a minute, you have a voice, and they hear you. Yeah. That is what makes me glad. I don't really, you know, I do, I would love, I publish my own work too, but I make my son press the books at home. <laughs> we do it all together before shows. Yes, that poor child. <laughs> (laughs) And he's bitter and mean. But but that's how we have to do it to get our, to be able to be heard. Because still, an editor will not ask me, you know, hey, can I read your story? No, that won't happen for me. But it happens for you. And I enjoyed hearing that because I know. I know how that really started. Don't worry, I do appreciate the fact that certain aspects I appreciate, but in others, like, you know, just being able, people of color being creative, women being creative and being heard, that's amazing because that did not happen when I started.
2: Well, I do think that there are platforms uh, evolving now uh, through technology that it, 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 it give artists an option. But I want to ask the, I want to seek those questions in the audience. So, come on, don't be shy. You have got great people up here. Uh, You gotta have questions right Councillor, that's here. Let's
5: hear Hello, my name's Laura. I come from the video game industry. uh, So, very similar. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts around things that we also take, that we're a very similar industry uh, around mentorship and creating the pipeline for future generations. Um, is what are your thoughts around there's what you talked about 20 years ago there was maybe a fraction, but so what the gaming side, and I'm wondering it's similar on the narrative and the other side, um, is that institutionalizing um organization or structures to help educate and teach the kids that are in the community how to get into this industry so that they can foster and they can grow and that when you look back out when I, don't, I don't look back twenty years instead in of thirty years. 90s, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm still like one of the few high ranking directors, GMs you of know, the studio when I look at the video industry, I look at you all still saying things already even all in the public industry. So how do you change this moving forward?
0: Well for me, part of it was I uh, just, yeah, I teach part time to I teach a at Portland State University and, and uh, part of the reason I started my own company was because I was, every time I would try to get an artist, you know, get Marvel or DC to hire an artist, i want to work with and to do it. And, and so I decided, well, I'm going to start my own publishing company. I'm going to do what I want to do, my, my own little projects. I'm not publishing anything written by anyone other than myself, right? But I started creating smaller projects and showing other people, well, yeah, this is, it, it's this easy. It's never been easier to do your own thing. And so I'm, I'm going to start a company that, is empowering myself. It's showing other people how to empower themselves. And go, okay, you know, you don't need these big companies anymore. We live in a really crazy time. You know, crowdfunding and, and things like that have made it possible to eliminate all these other things. The hospitals are really, really difficult. If they don't want to exploit you, just exploit yourself, and it feels better feels better when you are when you're working really hard for yourself, then some people you want to cut out for it. And then you turn around and you find ways to feed that back into whatever community you have, where you come from, or you just, you know, you take the time to answer the emails, or, you know, I don't remember the Urban League right now, we're trying to go to a workshop back home, and, and when they came to me, I said, look, you know, I live in Portland, which is a, you know, pretty white city, and <laughs> Like it, it, it's so white that most people are white. Um like you go and and
5: it's, it's important, and a lot of white folks. Okay.
0: And, and I said I uh, will do this commons workshop with you guys but I said like there be some black kids there, there to be some brown kids there. I'm not I'm not teaching a free commons workshop to a bunch of, you know. I'm just not going to do it. And, it's, and now I, I wouldn't teach a workshop to other kids. I'm not of that. But if, if this is the burden. And I'm trying to pull with a certain demographic, a certain, you know, um, certain, I'm, I'm trying to connect with myself at 12 years old, at 10 years old. And that's it. I think that, that we're still figuring out so much. And they don't want us in there. You know, they, they can get away. And as Ezra said, get out and Black Panther and even Creed and a handful of other movies have really changed the game but our role in the game has always been how do we make them more money as long as they can make money out of what we're doing they're fine with us they don't want to hear too much more from us but you know now we're making so much money that they they, they have to listen to some of us but yeah I mean I've I've gone to to the map trying to get people jobs and then and didn't listen, and so now I'm those artists online.
1: To speak a little, just a moment on that. The U.S. State Department actually started a program that I've worked with last year and they send me to areas in the world like Algiers and Spain to talk about comics and bring that to people who would be you know, disadvantaged. I lived outside the United States for a while so come, I didn't know comic books existed and I got to speak to Hondurans like where my family's roots are from and speak to them about comics and show them that there is a way to do this and a way that you this is a job because mostly Immigrant communities, drawing is considered pachingo. It's not something that will make money. Yeah, this is like stuff, this is a game, it's a joke. But then they see Black Panther and these big things and they say, well, where, where are the roots? How did this start? So to be able to show your face that, yes, there are people of color doing this. No, it's not only done by old white men. That was a really big deal in the State Department. You know, even in this horrible climate, we all know it's horrible, that they are actually paying to do that, to send me to places, and some are kind of on the dangerous side, to be perfectly honest. I was a little scared. But the fact that you went in there and then still can reach a community outside of America, an ethnic community outside of America, and go, yes, I understand this. I understand Spider-Man. You mean I can draw Spider-Man too? Yeah.
4: One you quick know. thing I okay, want to say um,
1: for people who are
4: who want to become cartoonists or aspiring cartoonists, I would say that um, not don't expect your mentor to look like you, and it's okay if they don't look like you. Um, my mentor was a little white and Filipino. Um, Woman named Linda Berry, and so I was when I saw. I know a really wonderful cartoonist. Yeah, and and I saw. So I had no idea that um, she she and I would uh, link up like that, and I wasn't expecting that. So it's okay if the person who ends up being your mentor doesn't look like you. I'm going to have to jump
2: in here because we're going to have to, I'm very sorry, but I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Um, uh, certainly there's a, also for cartooning, there's, there's an enormous amount of, uh, of work going on within libraries. Uh, and teachers are starting to understand that comics uh, actually can be used to, to uh, not only to, 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 to entertain you, but can help you learn and move on into the industry. But I'm going to have to wrap this up here. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Can we have a big handful of hands? The books, the books. Um, are you on yeah. tables
3: here? I'm, my book is for sale at the Graphics booth at 1721, and at the um, Lineforge booth, which is 55-something, I think, 5,500.
4: Um, I'm speaking later today, and then I'll be signing my books at uh, 1629,
1: and that's drawn quarterly. I'm at table II11, at the front in the little hot part of the
2: coffin. <laughs> you... Uh, Signing,
3: or...? Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm signing this book today at uh, 3 to 4 at the Fantagraphics table, and my last book Upgrade soul from 4.30 to 5.30 at Lineforge. All right, um,
0: and I'm the 25 Bitterroot, the image cons booth. I'll be signing with the rest of the team from 3 to 4, so you can the image, and then go to Fantagraphics, or vice versa, and you can get a it, kill, like, actually, like, four birds with one stone.
2: Better, so. All right, thanks to this wonderful time, for this time.